Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a serial founder, a founder that has built and scaled many companies, companies that have been acquired, companies that have raised quite a bit of money. And I think that during the time with, with him, I think that we're going we're gonna to be able to really capture and learn from all the different of experiences that, that he went through while, while going through his journey. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Babi Turakia. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Uh, pleasure being here. So originally born and raised in Mumbai. So, so tell us about life in Mumbai. Uh, Mumbai is an amazing city, actually. It's, uh, it's got a lot of character. I've spent my first almost 27 to 30 years in Mumbai growing up. Very enterprising city. Um, pretty much the financial capital of India. Uh, Every sort of entrepreneur or everybody who's sort of um, um, ambitious, I think, comes to Mumbai to make their career in Mumbai. Uh, it's always a buzz with excitement. Uh, um, throughout the day or night, you'll find action on the streets. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's an amazing city. Very cool. Very cool. And, and I know that very, very young, I think you were like something like 10, you started coding. So, so how did you start to develop this, this kind of like attraction or love for computers? Well, I always was a huge fan of uh, math and physics, I guess, early on growing up. Um, was always a nerd and a geek at heart. Um, my school, which I was in, um, school called Vidya Mandir in Mumbai, installed their very first computer room in 1989 when I was 10 years old, and I was just hooked. I would spend all of my short breaks, lunch breaks, um, several hours after school every day. Uh, my dad would buy me tons of programming books, and I would just go through them one after the other, um, I went through more than 25, 30 different books to learn programming in GW Basic and Visual Basic and uh, CC++ on, on MS-DOS back in the day. And so, yeah, I, I found my fortune to find my passion early on. Very cool. And I know that at this time as well, you started to, you know, read some of the biographies from other people as well. Uh, and, and, and I guess, like, how did you... How did you start really like reading and learning from others that were successful and what were some of the patterns that you were starting to recognize? Sure. So I've always been an avid reader all my life. Again, you know, most of what I am, a lot of my credit, a lot of the credit actually goes to my father who sort of invested considerable amount of time, effort and energy and resources behind um, um, our education. And he, was, he used to buy me a lot of books. 
Uh, one of the genres, one of my favorite genres was, was biographies of other successful and, you know, failed entrepreneurs. I guess sometimes you learn more from failures than, than success even. And um, so I, I've devoured, you know, tons of biographies back in the day. I still do. Um, but back in the day, I devoured biographies of Microsoft, Intel, Apple, and I was quite inspired. I think some of the, I think one of the things that I took away from most of these books, and I learned a lot from reading about entrepreneurs, but one of the things that I, I somehow took away was that well, all of these individuals, you know, they started out. Um, just like me, I guess, in some sense. And, and I, I got this perspective. And they also went through their ups and downs and um, successes and failures and, and mistakes and, you know, um, and, uh, and, and, and success, like, as, as I said. And, and I, I guess I got this feeling of perspective that you, you can achieve anything you set your mind to. This is something also my dad would keep telling us that, you know, you can achieve anything you set your mind to. And so for me, it just felt like I could relate to them and I felt like I could achieve similar success if I persevered and, and followed my passion. And I know that you later went to study science, but I guess uh, it didn't go as expected. So what happened? Well, actually, I mean, I started out by in India, you know, pretty much everyone, every parent wants their child to become either a doctor or an engineer. I um, wanted to do something in computer science. So everybody said I should take up computer science engineering. But when I went through the uh, engineering curriculum, I figured I'd already done most of it on my own. And so I didn't want to spend, uh, you know, four years of my life learning a bunch of stuff that I already learned, uh, I guess, on my on my own. And so I sort of decided to uh, uh, switch to commerce. Oh, actually, I, I originally thought I'd just drop out and start my company, but my parents would, you know, insist that I should get some degree. So I switched to commerce, which is, um, you know, I, I joined this college called Sydney, but I would never really attend it. I just only went for exams and got my degree uh, in distinction, but, but apparently started uh, various entrepreneurial ventures, consulting people, writing software, and then co-founding my first company uh, during that time. I mean, you were literally 18. So, you know, like one question that really comes to mind is, do you think entrepreneurs are born or do you think they're made? I absolutely believe entrepreneurs are made. I mean, I think many of the, uh, you know, as I said, I was fortunate to find my passion early on. I think entrepreneurs are individuals who pursue pursue their passion um, uh, and success is sort of automatically result as a side effect um, in many ways. And I think uh, a lot of my reading, a lot of my uh, journey has, has been uh, um, thanks to lots of lessons I've learned along the way, either through my success and failures or success and failures of other people. So I, I, I do strongly believe that, you know, if you find your passion, you want to solve a problem in life. Um, you know, I also believe that frustration is a genesis of entrepreneurship. You know, so a lot of entrepreneurs will find something, you know, in, in life or some passion, some problem they want to solve. Uh, and, and that's what really sort of carries them on. So tell us about your, your first passion or the, or the first problem that you encounter. And you obviously encounter this with the bank, with your brother. So, so this was with Directive. So, so tell us about it. How, how did you guys incubate this idea? How did you bring it to life? How did you guys decide to go at it together? Because obviously working with family members is not easy. So, so walk us through that process. Um, back in uh, uh, back in ninety four ninety five is when the internet first came into the country country in India, and you know the moment sort of um, internet access became available, uh, I was really sort of uh, excited about the possibility and potential that it uh, had for businesses. Um, so in ninety eight, um, I borrowed about. Um, close to about two, three hundred dollars from my father, bought our first server in a company called Alabanza. And then we started selling web hosting space and, and uh, domain name registration services because we figured 
well, if anybody, if the internet's just sort of becoming this you know, big phenomenon, and, and by the way, that time was still early days of the internet, but I at least believed that it would become a big phenomenon, then I felt everybody would need some assistance and some services to get you know, their web presence set up. And that would be the most fundamental service that we could provide. So we kind of started off that way um, and then grew that business, became one of the first ICANN accredited domain registrars in the country, um, you know, built out this entire reseller platform that enabled almost uh, 40, 50,000 resellers around the world to buy domain names, hosting email services from us and resell them to their customers and then, you know, carried on from there. And why, why did you guys sell? Um, well, no point were we looking. I mean, I wasn't looking to sell the company. Div was already running media.net at that point in time. I was actually in 2012 planning to start my next company, Radix. And I happened to meet um, uh, Hari, who's the CEO of Endurance, uh, actually for a potential partnership on Radix. And he turned around and said, well, you know, he's interested in buying my other company, which, uh, which by then was being run by um, sort of a bunch of other sort of business heads that I'd brought into the company uh, that were actually running the day-to-day. And, you know, I, I wasn't sure at first, and you know, I kind of said that I'm not looking to sell the company, but we started having meaningful conversations. And over a period of about, you know, six, eight months, I think eventually it made strategic sense for, for us, for our employees, for the company as a whole, for them to be able to leverage that technology across their broader organization. And so over time, we just um, felt that it made the, it, it was a win-win scenario for everybody involved. Because here you guys were doing domains, web hosting, so quite a different variety of, uh, of services that you were providing. But, but how big was the business um, you know, prior to the acquisition? Uh, we, were, we had about 9.5 to 10 million domain names registered around the world. We had you know, 40 to 50,000 resellers who were actively selling um, our services around the world, um, uh, upwards of $60, $70 million in revenue, and um, yeah, profitable company growing um, double digits year on year, uh, presence in, um, with customers in, in upwards of, you know, 80 to hundred countries, uh, around the world, uh, vast majority of our revenue coming in from North America, uh, Europe and, and India and a couple of other countries in, uh, in Asia pack. Um, so yeah, fairly global company, um, um, spread across the globe in terms of clients, revenue and, and, um, employees. Got it. And, and I mean, how old were you when you, when you actually, you know, the company was acquired, how old were you at this point? How old was I in 2014? Uh, well, that would be, uh, 34. Got it. 34. Um, so this was the first exit and you actually started directly at 18, correct? 17. 17. Wow. What a, what a journey, what a journey, Babin. So I guess, you know, out of, all these years, you know, like pushing direct and you finally get it to the finish line, you know, 106 at 60 million there in, in Mumbai. I mean, it's a, it's a big number, you know, for, for, for being there as well, because here in the U S is a big number. I can't even imagine in, in Mumbai. So I guess the, um, what was your biggest lesson from this journey? Well, I learned lots of lessons along the way. I think some of the biggest mistakes, for instance, I've made have been building products that nobody wanted. So I've learned a lot of um, lessons around validating my hypothesis at every step, you know, creating MVPs before we invest significant amounts behind a particular path. Um, I've learned, I mean, one of the things that I'll share with any and every entrepreneur is one of the best advice that I can give that I learned along the way is really focusing on hiring the best talent. I still spend a lot of my personal time and attention on 
really ensuring that we actually hire the absolute best talent in um, all of my companies. Uh, and that has actually meaningfully um, helped me grow businesses in different diverse industries and spaces um, to a large size sort of global organization because the kind of talent that we have. Um, so yeah, I guess those would be the top few things that come to mind. Another thing that I would typically say is uh, uh, focus on value, not valuation. This is something that I tell a lot of young entrepreneurs because these days it's very easy to get caught up in, in these big numbers because media tends to glamorize mostly valuations. And I really believe that valuations are a side effect. And if you follow your passion and um, you know, focus on creating value for your customers, then valuation will automatically follow. So I thought that was really interesting. So let's let's just hone in into that a little bit in validating the hypothesis. So let's say you come up with an idea because, I mean, you've started so many companies. But I mean, so let's say you come up with an idea and you want to validate, you know, whether it has legs or not for you to explore farther. What are like, for example, like the three most immediate things that you would do to measure if it makes sense to invest more time or not on that idea? I mean, I would say, I don't know, three most important things or not, but I'll just quickly kind of rattle off the way I would structure it is, you know, firstly, talk to customers as early and as often as you can. Um, if you have an idea, I mean, a business um, is essentially a target persona and a problem that you're trying to solve for. Um, and then you have a solution space, which is the actual product, right? So I keep saying, I keep telling people that, you know, a successful business comprises of a target persona with a problem not a product idea and a hypothesis, which is what a lot of people sometimes end up starting with. Um, so my objective would be, well, validate that the target persona actually has the problem. How are they currently solving it? You know, do you have something that's 10x better? Because people will not migrate um, unless you have, unless the advantage in migrating to your solution is substantially better than the pain of migration uh, that they would have with whatever they're using currently to solve that problem, even if they're solving it in a half-hearted manner. And so, so the idea would be uh, try and get in front of customers as, as fast as possible, validate through, uh, we use various techniques, like, well, you know, sometimes we'll have ideas, um, we'll just sort of use what, you know, in the industry we call kind of fake doors. So we'll, you know, create a mock version of the product or we'll create mock version of a feature inside a product and see how many people click on it or how many people ask about it. Um, we'll create fake Facebook ad campaigns to see, well, is there a level of interest trying sort of, you know, on Google or Facebook, trying to advertise to our target audience with the message that we're thinking the product should portray uh, the problem that we're trying to solve for and see how many people actually, um, you know, get attracted to it or, or, you know, click on it or are willing to buy it and things like that. So there's lots and lots of um, techniques and approaches, you know, from primary to secondary sources to validate your hypothesis. And we try and use as many of them to get a reasonably good idea on the target persona and the problem we're trying to solve for. Uh, on the fact that we actually offer a meaningful benefit and advantage uh, on what our go-to-market strategy could be and what kind of traction channels we could use to um, get to these customers and get to the customer base. Uh, preemptively also think about what kind of revenue models this could result in, uh, at least in some of our businesses. Some of them might be more market share oriented. So yeah, there's a lot of kind of initial um, uh, work and effort, but these days you can actually do a lot of these things real quickly, yeah, really quickly. You can actually do some of this stuff in a matter of you know, weeks or, or a couple of months, and you have a, a much better idea in terms of what you want to go with um, out there. Very cool. So let's say, go back to the story. So you guys sold for 160 million. And so what was next after Directy? Uh, well, so I, I started in 2012, a company called Radix. Uh, my younger brother was already running a company called Media.net. Uh, Media.net was into contextual advertising. Um, Radix was into... Uh, sort of domain name registry services. So we own 
dot tech dot store dot website dot space and and you know many other kind of um, premium top level domains and top level extensions. Um, so that was kind of the next phase. Um, um, parallelly, along with the time I was actually selling Direct Eye, because you know I started Radix in 2012, uh, whilst the Direct Eye sale happened in 2014. Got it. And your brother actually did pretty well with Media.net. I think it was one of the uh, largest ad tech acquisitions in history. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it was it was amongst the top largest top ad tech uh, exits globally. Uh, certainly, the largest uh, one of the definitely one of the largest bootstrapped um, ad tech exits globally. Uh, and so he he ran the company from um, he started doing work in the ad, online advertising space on a couple of uh, brands and businesses from 2005 2006 onwards. Started Media.net in 2010, ran it for six years, and then um, sold it for 900 million dollars in 2016. Very nice. And he's already added again with Sita, which is valued at uh, uh, right? Sorry, valued Zita, at like three hundred million, right? Zita is founded by me and Ramki. The, my younger brother is actually not involved in that. Company, oh, okay, so. got it, got it, got it. So many brothers and so many tech entrepreneurs. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. So I've co-founded Zita with a person called Ramki. He's he was actually the CTO of one of my companies before and okay, has worked with me for about 10 years and two of us started that in 2015. 2015. Okay, but let let's not lose track here. So let's talk about Radix. So why why did you start Radix? Well, I mean I've always believed I'm actually part of the process um, in the, you know, I can kind of, you know, decision making process to kind of um, um, try and get new GTLDs, new top-level extensions out as fast as possible for consumer choice around the world. I mean, I've always believed before 2012, before these new top-level extensions were launched, that the options for most customers were fairly limited. I mean, you know, you could register a domain name in, you know, whatever, .com, .net, like a few different extensions. And that didn't make sense to me. I mean, think about a world where everybody has only this, only one last name to choose from. Like, all of us have the same last name. It, it makes no sense. And yet most of the internet until 2012 was like that. Most of the websites around the world were .com. Uh, doesn't matter what they did or what they stood for, et cetera. And so uh, um, strongly believe that consumer choice is important as, uh, as the internet continues to grow. And we became one of the largest applicants of new top-level extensions when ICANN finally announced the process in 2012. And, um, and then basically won um, and got the license to operate now nine to 10 different extensions that are currently um, representing 25% of the market share of all new top level domain and all new GTLD domains that are registered around the world. And so, yeah, that, that was uh, what kind of started what sparked Radix. And given that I already had you know, close to about 12 to 14 years of experience in the industry, I could leverage that to make sure that we create like a meaningful business plan that, um, uh, that really selects the best of TLDs and the best business plan to actually accomplish, to actually um, get to a sizable business, business uh, volume. Got it. Because, I mean, this is not a $200 million company. So what's what's essentially the business model? How do you guys make money? So we so every time you register a domain name that ends in .store or .tech or .online, you're essentially paying your domain registrar, who in turn pays us that money uh, after keeping a portion of the revenue themselves. So we... So if you go to GoDaddy and search and buy Alejandro.space um, or Alejandro.tech, um, GoDaddy actually registers it with us because we own the .tech extension. And so you, know, you might pay them you know, $30, they might pay us $20 per year for that name. 
Uh, and so that's how we, that's the business model. And that's how, um, that's how I make money on, on Radix. That's very cool. And one of the things that I've seen uh, here, Bobby, is that you, you seem very, very skilled at creating companies, you know, like kind of like put them already on the hyper growth and on the scaling mode. And then you're very good as well at, at, at really recruiting the right people to, to take it on and keep building while you're putting yourself more at the strategic level. Like for example, here in Radix, you became chairman. So, so how do you, how do you go about this? Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, I love building companies. I love solving problems. And a typical company goes through, you know, kind of, I guess, three phases, as I say, at the macro level, right? You start off with the discovery phase. I love that phase. This is when, you know, everything is vague and ambiguous and uncertain, and you've got a problem that you're passionate about, and uh, you don't necessarily know exactly how you're going to tackle it, but you're in the process of learning a lot, you know, doing really fast, rapid experiments and uh, absorbing information, bringing in the initial talent, kind of the you know, if it's a tech company, sort of the software developers, the product managers, sort of the initial sales and marketing people that will help you kind of run your go-to-market motions, et cetera. But this is kind of the initial discovery phase. Um, you know, once you get to product market fit um, and, and a sales-ready product, like a PMF and an SRP stage, you get into scaling mode, which is kind of the next phase where you now have a product, you, you know, that's proven product market fit. You potentially have a revenue or a go-to-market model that works and you're putting in capital, resources, money, people, et cetera to scale the business really, really rapidly. You're typically seeing high double-digit or high you know, triple-digit growth year on year. And then you eventually get to a stage where you kind of have the steady state phase. Um, uh, and you know, you've, you've, uh, uh, you've scaled the business substantially and you now have steady growth, steady revenues, um, steady profitability, uh, and so on and so forth. And I, I try to be very, very involved and personally hands-on in the discovery phase. I try to you know, induct the right kind of management talent, mid-management, et cetera, in the scaling phase that works with me on the right traction channels to scale the business. Uh, and I'm fairly hands-on and involved there. Uh, and then by the time I'm getting to kind of a steady state growth phase, I'm bringing in the right senior leadership that will take on the company and, and ensure that it sort of um, steadily continues to grow from that point onwards. But I mean, choosing a CEO for your own business, I mean, that's a super risky decision because uh, you can literally get someone that is going to break the business. Everything that you've worked so hard for. So I guess, what are the questions, the right questions that you ask, or what are the traits that you look for that individual that ultimately you're bringing on board as the CEO? I mean, at a very macro level, and most people, you know, no matter what the level, we look for people who are smart and get things done. I think two of the most important qualities uh, with, uh, with you know, any role like a CEO. So for instance, in case of Radix, by the way, the person who sort of took on the role of a CEO was somebody who's been working with me for more than 12 to 14 years. And so I know him quite well. He's actually grown up the ranks um, along with me in, in multiple other companies before. And so there's a significant level of trust and, and I know, you know what he's capable of. Right. Uh, in Zeta right now, we've hired a president in India uh, who's going to handle the entire PNL for India? I'm in the process of hiring a president in the US. And so, there again, now these were all completely external hires because he does scaling at an extremely rapid pace, and we didn't have internal people that could directly take on these roles. But I've been very meticulous. Like two of the presidents that we hired in India, one of them took me almost, um, almost 11 months to find. I've gone through tons of candidates, um, you know, detailed case studies, detailed, you know, ref checks, detailed interview processes with me and my co founder to get to a point where I clearly understand that their values match with us, their cultural values and cultural fitment, that they're really smart, that they can handle ambiguity, um, extremely rapid scaling, um, have similar ideas in terms of go-to-market discovery and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and so, yeah, um, those are the kind of traits that we would look for. 
So then, so Bobby, when you're recruiting, I'm sure that there is, you know, obviously, like you said, there's a multiple process, multiple months, and in many instances, there's years. But I'm sure that there is one question, one question that you ask that for you, the answer is going to be a make it or break it for you. What is that question and why? I, I, I must admit, actually, it's quite the opposite. Uh, the process, in most cases, what I prefer, so a couple of things that I'll talk about, you know, one is I always prefer uh, doing case studies that enable me to think, enable me to um, uh, uh, understand how a person thinks. Um, if I'm bringing them on for a particular role and I understand that they're going to be leading product, I'm going to give them a product case study and really understand um, in a fresh environment uh, with specific closed loop questions um, exactly how you know creative they are within those constraints and how they can come up with. Uh, so, so we test for comprehensiveness, creativity, and and log and sort of rationale and kind of logical reasoning in these case studies. And so, so, so most of the questions are around trying to test them for. Well, here's a problem statement. This is the goal you're trying to achieve, and they're really ambitious goals. So it might be, well, if I want to grow the India business, you know, to 100 million dollars in revenue in the next 18 months, you know, come up with the strategic plan, uh, both go to market, what are the things that you change in the product, things of that basically. And so the, the idea that I'm looking for, it's not necessarily that we have to agree with everything the person says, but what I'm looking for is creativity, comprehensiveness, and logical feasibility of whatever they come up with uh, in each of these scenarios and situations. Um, if it's engineering, then we go through a pretty extensive technical process um, that involves, depending on the level they're at, kind of algorithmic coding, uh, pairing, architecture skills, and so on and so forth. So, that, so each you know role and function has its own uh, has its own process. And then, of course, during the process, also test for cultural fitment and things like that. Got it. And in your case, for example, here in Radix, what was that moment where you really told yourself, I need to I need to put myself up at the chairman level and, and, and really get someone at the CEO level? Well, to be honest, Sandeep, who's actually, Sandeep Ramchandran, who's actually a CEO, was already managing CEO-like responsibilities for like a year and a half before he officially took on that role. And so he was already, you know, owning strategy, owning execution, growth plans, et cetera. Uh, and I was working closely with him um, to ensure that we kind of, you know, well, pass on whatever mentorship that I could and, and work with him on areas that I felt were important. But otherwise, he was already starting to run some of those responsibilities, having grown up in the ranks there. And then, you know, at some point was ready to take on that role um, meaningfully and take things forward. Very cool. And your next rodeo was Flock. So tell us about how you incubated Flock because you had already enough on your plate and you decided to launch one more business. So Flock, basically, I'm, I'm passionate about productivity. In my personal life also, I try and do lots and lots of experiments to continuously increase my productivity, my efficiency, whatever I can do, within a, you know, improve my efficiency and you know, what I can achieve out of every single minute of my life. And, um, and Flock was born out of that notion. It's like, let's create a tool set for teams and individuals that enable them to enhance their productivity. And Communication and collaboration, we believe, is one area that can, you know, has significant scope for improvement in, um, um, well, in an, in an organization. And so that's the area that we uh, that we took up first. Um, I started, you know, working with the team. So we had actually already built some instant messaging software for end consumers before that. Then pivoted and morphed into Flock, and we started with messaging. Then we built video calling. Now we've built email, calendar, and contacts, and essentially providing a comprehensive productivity suite to um, companies around the world. Got it. Got it. Very cool. And and obviously, I mean, at this point, you've already had, uh, you already had achieved success, meaningful success uh, in your professional career. And obviously you had 
build that financial muscle as well from your exits and from how well you were doing with your other ventures. So why did you decide to go out and raise money? Oh, well, the money was raised for my next company, Zeta. Um, so um, with oh, Zeta... Flock, how, how did you capitalize Flock then? Was it just... So Flock, Flock's been capitalized out of my own personal, um, sort of my personal wealth so far. Ah, okay, got it, got it. So you were the one financing it. So, so then how big is Flock today? Uh, we've got a couple of hundred thousand users on our messenger platform. We've got um, pipeline to grow to almost a million accounts on our email platform. Um, customers, again, from upwards of 50, 60 countries, uh, about 125 odd employees uh, across multiple global locations. And uh, most of our go-to-market came together in the last six months and is going to really be aggressive uh, growth going forward now across 2020. So that's that's really the year where we're looking at sort of spending most of our resources behind um, go-to-market and growth. Got it. Very cool. You know, there is, um, I remember that, you know, like with all these companies that you've started, I mean, we're talking about the drive and the passion. You know, there's a lot of people that that I speak with that 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 they they think that it makes it makes sense to go out and, and, and launch a business for, for becoming a millionaire and making millions and all of that stuff. What what piece of advice would you have for those? I mean, I, I, I kind of said this before, right? Focus on value, not valuation. I think money and everything else is a side effect. I mean, to us, uh, never made any difference that we had $160 million from our first exit. Uh, you know, they went on to sort of create a, a close to a billion dollar company. Um, I've subsequently formed, you know, a bunch of different companies that are at various stages. Zeta is now a $350 million, $300 million company, well, as of a year and a half ago. Um, and so uh, I think the money, the the money, the valuation, et cetera, is all side effects. I mean, I think... Uh, I'm really passionate about the problems that we're solving with Zeta, for instance. I think it has the potential to become um, 20, 30 times or even more bigger than anything I've built so far in my life and uh, combined. And uh, and so in many ways, that's, you know, the goal is to, I mean, I've always believed each of us has a moral obligation to make an impact that's proportionate to our potential. And I feel that I still have a lot more potential in terms of the kind of impact that I can make, the kind of difference that I can make, the kind of employment I can create, the kind of uh, technology innovation that I can be a part of. Uh, in the payments world. And so, yeah, I think that's uh, that's really what I believe people should pursue. So I love it. And let's talk about then CETA. So CETA is uh, your next your next move. So so what uh, what what drove this move? Um, so again, you know, I, I've, I and Ramki, my co-founder, we've been, you know, uh, passionate about the payment space and excited about the space since quite some time. In 2014, we got together, started discussing, well, what would the world look like today, you know, if we had to rethink an entire payment system and banking system from scratch. And we strongly believe that, you know, across the world, uh, banking technology is, is, is comprised of all these legacy stacks that have been built the last 20 years that really think of ledgers and transactions as fundamental units, but they don't really think of people and purpose. And so we've our vision is to accelerate the world to invisible payments. We strongly believe that payments should not, nobody should care about payments. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm excited, I have to make five payments today. They're always trying to achieve a purpose. And so we built a cloud-native modern banking platform that really takes purpose to the core, enables through rules, workflows, APIs, and uh, uh, really configurable modular architecture, enables banks and financial companies to provide a much more engaging experience for their customers uh, when it comes to payment products or uh, financial products and services. And we now have you know, upwards of 4 million users uh, where we've launched in four to five different countries. Uh, and we're launching in a few others. Um, 
And uh, we're processing close to a billion dollars, 600 plus million in transaction volume and growing pretty rapidly there. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's essentially um, intended to disrupt sort of legacy technology in the banking and financial services space uh, with a much more modern new age banking platform that we think will really, um, really drive what we call democratization of banking and, and payments across the world. And you were saying that on, on Flock, you actually finance it from, from your own pocket. Uh, and here on CETA, you actually, it's the time where, where you actually decided to open it up for, for outside investors. So, so why did you do that here? So Zeta is my most ambitious plan to date. I mean, I, I see it um, as, as, as uh, you know, one of my biggest kind of um, um, sort of goals and objectives in terms of the kind of scale that it can achieve. And um, so as we went through that process, we felt, uh, Ramki and I both uh, felt that it makes sense to kind of uh, scale rapidly through external capital. At some point in time, it would become unfeasible for me to continue putting my own personal capital behind it. And, you know, we also felt that we had a really strategic kind of deal a year and a half ago. So the investing company is a company called Sodexo, which is also one of our partners. And so there were there was a really strategic kind of business deal that we worked with them on that partly came as a part of this investment. And so overall, it became a win-win scenario that uh, that would help us scale as well as uh, uh, con confirm and commit business volumes from a partner that we uh, that we respect and we we've, we've done a lot of work with. Very cool, and I and I'm sure that for you, making sure that that you had people that were particularly aligned, you know, on the vision and on what you guys were set out to achieve was was super important. You know, uh, when when you were kind of like opening your cap table for others to join that as well. So I guess what what were some of the things that you were looking for in those people? Um, well, we we're looking for what I would call smart capital, so not just sort of money and not just capital, but you know, somebody who could also help with help us sort of work with us to grow business or open doors for us or things of like that which is the reason why we kind of worked with a strategic on on this one got it got it makes makes complete sense and i guess hey, as well in terms of uh the networks that they can bring and the role of the eggs and and contacts and i'm sure that that was also important no well, in case of Sodexo, they primarily themselves are a client, and so they would themselves bring in the business. But in the future, also, as Zeta continues to look at potential, you know, capital raises in the future, we certainly will look to participate and partner with um, the financial partners in the ecosystem that can bring in much more than capital uh, and, and sort of bring in their, as you said, Rolodex and contacts and open doors for us. And also, when you're building a fintech company, I mean, here in the U.S., regulations is a beast. You know, those, those regulatory hurdles are are tough and they're real. Um, tell us about the the regulatory, you know, landscape as well for fintech companies in India. Um, so actually, I mean, I think yes, financial regulation has always been, you know, um, has has always been, well, I guess, exhaustive in many ways. But I would say that in the fintech world, of the last five seven years, I've actually seen regulations being ahead of technology, and in many ways. Um, U.S., Europe, and India have seen the central banks and the regulators are very progressive in terms of enabling the interest of the consumer, security of the consumer, at the same time progressiveness in terms of uh, technology adoption. Uh, India has, you know, gone through waves of de demonetization, digitization, uh, encouragement in terms of reductions of MDR to ensure that you know digital payments become a reality. So there's a lot of impetus the government has put behind, not just in India but across the world, to digitize payments, um, and they're doing a lot. And so in many ways, um, I actually think that technology now needs to catch up in many of these countries. And that's really where Zeta is playing a role. 
Um, separately, though, I must say that Zeta's role is predominantly that of a technology provider. So we provide our technology to regulated licensed players like neobanks, fintechs, banks, etc. We ourselves are not a bank and don't intend to be. So we actually have to ensure we see that our systems are fully compliant with regulation. And we do that at all points in time um, um, from a security standpoint, data localization standpoint, local rules and regulation standpoint. Um, so so our, our technology platform is fully compliant with uh, whether it's you know Europe, we're working in kind of Italy and a couple of the countries in Asia. Pack, we're working in Vietnam, Philippines, India. We're launching shortly in the U.S. And so uh, we're ensuring that our platforms are fully compliant with local regulations. Uh, and then we work with regulated entities to provide them these capabilities. Got it. And how many people do you have in Zeta now? Uh, I think it's close to about 450 people across Zeta. Wow. And is it true that right now, if I understand right, you're the CEO of both Zeta and Flock? Yes, that is correct. Though I do have a co-founder in, in Zeta, um, and I spend a relatively large amount of time there. And I have a senior leadership in Flock, a team in Flock. Um, so I have a head of engineering, a chief revenue officer, and a chief product officer that basically takes care of um, all of the kind of aspects on Flock's um, business. Wow. My God, Bobby, when do you sleep? <laughs> That's my Everest. <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable. So how, how, do you, how do you really diversify the time, right? So that you're able to be uh, equally effective because, I mean, building one company as a co-founder and CEO uh, is is pretty uh, challenging already, you know, with just one. Here you are doing it, you know, two times, right? Like at the same time with two different companies. So how, how do you, how do you manage to do that? Uh, as I said, it's the talent. I mean, I have amazing people in Flock that actually um, hold the fort and I have an amazing co-founder in Zeta um, with an amazing team there that kind of um, uh, again sort of um, holds the fort there so um, I tend to spend um, I guess a majority of my time a uh, larger majority of my time on Zeta these days but uh, to that extent I think I'm supported by an amazing team that uh, that uh, enables me to you know perform the miracles I guess that we're performing. And is there like a routine that you follow or or how does a typical day look like for you, Babin? Um, I mean, typically I spend most of my time in London. So I have a house in London, Dubai, India, and, and the U.S. And I spend uh, about 60 to 70% of my time in London, uh, which gives me a perfect time zone that's centrally located to manage and coordinate with my offices in, in Europe, U.S., and India. Um, I tend to wake up uh, in the morning and start my workday pretty early and get like a full workday overlap with India and mostly spent on kind of online meetings with my team there. Um, and then I spend sort of evening times working and coordinating with my teams in the US and, and Europe. Uh, a large chunk of my personal time is spent on product strategy and on large deal making. So those are the two areas that I sort of focus most of my time on. Uh, and so with Zeta, for instance, a lot of the go-to-market, you know, or some of the large deals kind of reports into me and I work closely with the team to kind of make that happen. And, uh, and then sort of work closely with, uh, with, with the flock team on product and product strategy and GTM strategy, basically. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of typically what the, the typically the functions that I, um, that I tend to manage. Very cool. Very cool. And I guess say uh, one of the beauty of, uh, of really being able to, to, to become successful no, or, or to have a, a couple of exits is that you're able to give back. And I understand that that you are also part of Code Chef. So can you tell us about this initiative? So Code Chef was started, uh, again, with my passion of programming. I felt that 
Um, so started with an India focus. I felt that the quality of programmers in India was not equivalent to sort of the rest of the programmers of the world. So we decided to create a self-learning platform where people can compete with each other and learn programming skills. Uh, since then, it's grown to a global competition platform that hosts hundreds of competitions every year. And, uh, and basically, um, millions of kind of users and programmers participate in these contests around the world and, um, and compete. And then we publish all their solutions on the website for other programmers or participants to kind of learn from. So that's, um, that's kind of what CodeChef does. So it's a nonprofit. So I, um, I'm currently investing behind it as a you know, pure sponsor. It doesn't have any kind of profit objectives. And the golden objective is predominantly to um, grow the quality of sort of algorithmic coding and programming around the world. That's very cool. Very cool. And, you know, I understand that, you know, obviously the, the journey of being an entrepreneur, you know, it's a, it's not such thing as a straight line. And, and I know that, you know, we, we all have our, our moments, right. And, you know, some of, some of, some are pretty dark, uh, but I guess that ultimately we get to learn a lot from them. So I guess, you know, now as, as you're maybe looking back about in, in this journey of building and, and scaling companies, what was that moment for you where, where perhaps, you know, it, it, it was a major breakdown, but it led to a massive, you know, learning opportunity for you. What was that moment? So, I mean, I would say that I have not had any breakdowns, but I certainly have had my fair share of failures. I've, I've uh, you know, we launched this Build It For Me website product back in 2008. I tried to sell it for a year and a half. It didn't uh, work out. Nobody, you know, we weren't getting the kind of revenue that we wanted against the cost that we were spending. Um, so I had to sort of stop that after a significant amount of investment. Uh, as I said before, Flock, we actually were working on a end consumer messenger product. So kind of competing with like the WhatsApp and Facebook messenger, et cetera, and spent several years behind building that. And, and that didn't work out. Uh, but, you know, each time I've learned lessons in product management, I've learned lessons in go-to-market strategy. I've learned lessons in terms of, as I said, you know, validating first, um, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, identifying target personas and many, many other lessons along the way. So I've had series of failures, but each time I've always treated that as like, oh yeah, I made a bunch of mistakes for a, maybe sometimes even a long period of time. And now I know not what, you know, what not to do. So I can now ensure that I don't repeat that, you know, going forward. So, yeah. Yeah. And talking about those lessons learned, there's one question that I typically ask the folks that, that come on the show. And that is, if you had the opportunity to have a chat with your younger self, let's say with that Bobby in that was, you know, starting or, or, or thinking about launching that business that first business directly uh, at 17, right? If you had the chance, knowing what you know now, to go back in time and to, to be able to sit down with that younger self and, and perhaps to give yourself, that younger self, one piece of business advice, what would be that one piece of business advice before launching a business and why? So I actually these days talk about this model that I call TAP, T-A-P. Uh, it stands for Talent Alignment and Prioritization. And so I feel that success in business comes with Hiring the best talent, so that's the talent part, ensuring that they're all aligned to the same goals and objectives, and we use OKRs for that, by the way. I, I would strongly recommend that as a tool and framework, and ensuring that they pick the highest priority initiatives that will achieve those goals and objectives. So as long as you have talent alignment and prioritization, you have the formula for success. And I think you know this kind of crystallization has occurred over years and years of making mistakes and failures. So in many ways, if I could teach this model and um, talk about this to my younger self, I think that would be my, um, you know, my advice. I love it. I love it. So, Babin, for the folks that are listening, 
what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, you can connect with my name is Bhavan Surakya. Um, you can connect with me on uh, LinkedIn or Twitter. Uh, and my email address is bhavan at flock.com. So feel free to drop me a line um, anytime. Be happy to hear from fellow entrepreneurs uh, at any point in time. Fantastic. Well, Bhavin, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you, Alejandro, for taking the time. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.